Good morning. It's great to see so many, well, eyes uh, say that much, and some faces on Zoom. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, a hint of things to come, I hope. As you can see, uh, we've just got a standalone message this morning, um, and I've titled it, They Shall Know My Voice. And I just want to, as we start to reconnect, as we start to regather as a community, hopefully on the 27th of June and ongoing through July and August, that we keep our focus on hearing his voice, knowing him above everything else. While it's going to be excellent to have social interaction and, uh, and tea and coffee, and that's really valuable to have fellowship and start walking and doing life together to a greater and greater extent. We don't want to miss the Jesus about whom we gather. He remains central. He remains core to everything we are as individuals and collectively. I'll see if the, yeah, the blipper works. Brilliant. Thank you. John 10, 27 records Jesus saying this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's a huge amount in this one statement. He is the good shepherd. He's the one who precedes us through life's difficulties and challenges. He knows what's ahead. And he guides us. He takes us into safe places, into refuge for our souls, despite difficult conditions. He enables us to withstand what otherwise on our own we could not. And it's key to recognise that we understand his voice. The sheep in any field, if I walked into that field and started making the noises of a shepherd, they'd look at me completely bemused. Like, what on earth are you? No idea. But when the shepherd walks into that field, they both know his shape and his voice. And there is safety, there is security, there is relationship, there is history. They know him. And he knows them. There's an intimate interaction between Jesus and those that follow him. It's intimate. And we follow him. Him. It's interesting, isn't it, on Facebook and all the rest that I've thankfully avoided thus far. There's the opportunity to follow. Follow, follow, follow. And on Twitter, follow, follow, follow. And there's some value in it, I'm sure. But we can follow a thousand people. We can be friends with a million. But none of it's real. The online environment sets us up for what appears to be relationship, what appears to be connection, but in fact isn't. Those people don't know you and you don't know them. But he knows you. He knows you. And he wants you to know his voice. I did a 
bit of a discipleship audit a while ago, about two years ago, and I asked myself these questions. Who do I listen to most? Who do I read the most? And what do I read the most in the Bible? Kind of provoking the question. Because what's available is more than we've ever had in history. There are more podcasts, more YouTube videos, more websites, more books, more blogs than we've ever had. And once you dive in, it's like being in a candy store. It's like, wow, that's awesome. That's fantastic. That's great. What about this? What about that? There's this as well. And if you're anything like me with books, you've got a pile of them half read on your desk with loads of bits of paper sticking out, and then you get another one. Oh, my days, look at that. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Loving what this guy's saying. But when I did this discipleship audit, I asked myself the question, am I hearing him more than any other voice? Who am I listening to more than any other voice? What am I reading in the Bible? Am I reading what's being directed me to me by others? Or am I reading the whole of it and allowing Holy Spirit to speak to me through it, independent of another voice speaking over the top? And so two years ago, I decided I'm not going to listen to anything. I'm just going to cut that out for a while, for a season. Because I want to tune my ear to his voice and no one else's. He has words for you that are profound. Specific words for you daily, through his written word, but by his spirit. And he longs for you to hear his overtures of love. He wants you to know your value. He wants you to know how intimately he knows you. And he wants to provoke you in the journey of intimacy, of discipleship and of fellowship with him. So it's casting out what looks great, what can be fruitful for that which is most fruitful, for that which is most valuable, which is our master's voice. As an encouragement to you in this, I'd say to you, keep on reading all of Jesus' teaching. Read it all. All of it. Get into the Gospels. Read them end to end. Don't just pick out the verses. Verse for today is brilliant. But it doesn't give you that sense of the person of Jesus Christ in the multiplicity of contexts. How often do we correlate things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And do not fear those who can destroy the body, 
but instead fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul. Do we ever correlate those two things? That Jesus Christ, our master, our saviour, our king, is also judge of all the earth? Or do we cherry pick the bits and pieces that we're being given by others because they might be in vogue? And the reality is in life, humanity has vogues. Cultural shifts. Some of those are outside of the church and influence the church. Others come out from within the church. Sometimes as a response to situations. Others times as a trend. But what we want to get hold of is him. The Logos and the Rima. What Jesus says in the whole of the gospel narratives revealed to us by the Holy Spirit who gave it to the gospel writers saying, I will bring to your mind everything so that you can write them down and you can pass them on. And by his spirit that we might hear it in the here and now. That the word comes alive to us, but also we have the specific words like, Take off your masks that Peter brought today. Jesus said that his words are the solid foundation in Matthew 7. The solid foundation upon which if you build your life, it will stand. And Paul builds on this argument in Romans 12 too, saying, I want you to change the way you think. I want you to live according to his will and his purpose. It's in this that you will find life. But it's in the reading of Jesus. It's in keeping him front and central that we understand who we are and he changes the way we think. As we see him interact with the world around him, as we see him pouring out love and grace again and again and again and mercy, but also setting boundaries of definition recognizing what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. What is good for us and what is not good for us. It's a bit of a gear change. But I wanted to look at some translations and talk a little bit, because we don't often do this. We don't often talk about biblical translations and what we do with them and what we read and when we read it and all of that good fun stuff. And so I want us to just explore a little bit of this idea of not all Bibles are the same, right? We know that. We've got loads of different Bibles, particularly in English, which is a bit of a travesty being that some languages still don't have one. And when people are translating the scriptures, they're going down a particular route. What they're trying to do is either go for a word-for-word -word equivalent. Here's the Greek, here's the Hebrew. So what I want to do is I want to translate that specific word and then build a sentence based on the same number of words and the exact translation or as close as I can get to it. Now, sometimes that's called formal equivalent. It's literal translation and it's form-based. Now, that's 
that's really helpful when you're doing a study, a word study. So if you have an interlinear Bible with the Hebrew and the Greek against the English, that's really helpful to get into the word and really understand what's being said. But it's difficult. It's not easy. Not many of us are Hebrew scholars. I'm certainly not. And Greek is, well, Greek. So it's hard to get hold of. And if you're not a brilliant linguist, it's going to be challenging. So a lot of times, translators try and go for a thought-for-thought dynamic. What, what, what's the writer originally saying, and therefore, what is being communicated? I don't want to translate the words literally if they lose their power and meaning in the translation. That's not helpful. And so that's more thought about as being dynamic translation. And then we have paraphrases, which go another step further and almost move away from the original text, but seek to capture the heart of what's being said. And so we get a very broad panoply of translations. Now, this is going to be too small for you to observe, but what I want you to capture from it is that there's a massive breadth of different translations. And on the one side, we have word for word, in the middle, thought for thought, and at the other end, paraphrases. And what I want to do is briefly look at the NASB, the NLT, and the message translation. But before we do that, I just want to talk a little bit about the Passion Translation, because You've probably heard either on YouTube or on various forums or various feeds some thoughts around the Passion Translation and what it's all about and what's going on. And it's one of these ones that can be really divisive depending on your, your own sort of theological position and what you believe about what God says to the church today and how Holy Spirit reveals himself during a translative process and what scholarly approach to the text looks like and feels like. Should it always be on team? Should it be one man on their own? Should it have a variety of inputs and counsel around it? And should those people be experts? There's a lot of questions in and around the Passion Translation. I think what we can agree on over all the years since 2016 plus that this translation's been around, most people agree it's not a translation per se, but it is a paraphrase. And if you've got eyes of an eagle on that previous slide, you would have seen it down the paraphrase end just before the message version. So the author is basically writing in a way that translates the language, but also he imbues it with an expression of its thoughts. He extends it. It's not quite the same as amplifying, but he extends some of the thoughts. Now, of course, the other attribute of the passion is that it's injected with passionate language. And you might think, well, duh, yeah, that's obvious, right? Because it's called the passion translation. But it's important to note Because what you want to do when you're reading scripture and you're saying this is scripture, what you want to note is, is this the cadence and the feel of what was communicated originally? Because if I inject extra passion into the text that wasn't there from the originating authors, I need to be aware, right? 
Because otherwise, my expectation in my reading is that my life ought to reflect what I'm reading. And therefore, it should have that same effect and weight of authority on me as a translation would. But actually, what we see in it is that the additional passionate language, whilst it can be evocative, isn't always helpful. I had someone say to me some time ago, I'm just not feeling that much joy at the moment. And I was aware that they, they read the Passion Translation. And so we talked around it a little bit about the fullness and scope of Scripture and the depth of what Scripture enables the human soul to handle and deal with from grief and depression and difficulty and sorrow and sadness through to joy, exaltation and all the rest. And it's actually enabling God to walk with us through something and in something that is so very important. And so we need to be aware when there is additional passionate evocative language imbued into something that wasn't there originally. The next thing we want to understand about this is that it really interprets the text within a specific theological expression. One way of phrasing that is to talk about it being sectarian. It's a, it's a specific application of the, of the interpretation of what's been written within a framework of theology or theological expression. Okay? And what you find if you do a word search within the, within the book is that you will find a lot of hot words, buzzwords, keywords that come from that particular theological expression that have been inserted into the text. Now, at the end of the day, most people see it as being fine if you take out the word translation because it just isn't a translation. To take that out, call it the passion version, call it you know, a, a, a charismatic commentary or a personal commentary on the scriptures. Brilliant, fine. And then we can walk away and leave it there. It follows a tradition within Judaism of what could be called a targum, which is taking the scriptures. They would never change the scriptures, but what they do is they take them and then they put their own thoughts and extrapolations and developments of thoughts within the text. But it would be seen as something other than the originating text. And so what I would encourage you, if you've got a passion version and you're interested in reading it and going through it, I would suggest to you that you read another version as well alongside. NASB, ESV, NLT, something like that. Just to show you, okay, this is, this is you know, I'm finding it helpful perhaps, but actually this is what the originating one says. And what you'll find is at some points there is a significant colliery between the two. But at other times, you think, oh, actually, that feels quite distinct. Because when we're going through the internet, when we're reading books, when we're exploring what's being talked about on a podcast, and we're testing, we want to be able to test with something that's original to the Word of God as possible. Not something which has been developed by somebody else with additional thoughts into it, but he's presenting itself as such. Because that way, we get to test what is being said in the marketplace of ideas. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to be able to define it very well. Now, 
I'm going to stop there. We've run out of time, and uh, we'll have a look at some other things another time, perhaps. And uh, I'll leave that with you. Let me flick through to the last one. HMV record stores. His master's voice. The dog cocking his head into the gramophone because he recognises his master's voice, but he's slightly confused because clearly he can't see he's there. But it became the image for the accuracy of the record process and the reproduction of the sound that the dog recognised his master's voice. It wasn't so crackly, it wasn't so ill-defined that he couldn't hear it and he just ignored it. This record and this gramophone is so good, your dog would recognise your voice if it was recorded on it. And I want to leave that thought with you today. We want the clarity of our master's voice. We want to make it our focus and our intent to hear him regularly, to read him well, to understand him and follow him with all our hearts. Bless you. I'll leave it there. Thank you.